Magic Book Club with Benson's for Beds. Hello, welcome along to the Magic Book Club podcast with me, Tom Price. This is the podcast that takes a deeper look into why our favourite authors put pen to paper or fingers to typewriters. Actually, no, fingers to keyboards. Anyway, you get the point. On this week's episode, I'm going to be catching up with the fantastic Mike Gale about his 17th, that's right, 17th novel, All the Lonely People. It's absolutely glorious. Also, we're going to be hearing from the mind behind songs like Diamonds Are Forever and The Starlight Express, Don Black. We're going to be checking in with some of your favourite authors as well to see what they've been reading over the past few months and to find out exactly what inspires them to write these great books which we enjoy so much. Okay, let's catch up then, shall we, with author of one of our favourite books this month. It's called All the Lonely People. Mike, it doesn't seem like a year ago since I was last talking to you. Um, Welcome back to Magic Book Club Podcasts. Thank you very much for having me. And it probably is exactly a year ago. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's just brilliant. Um, So I was going to say, I know what you've been up to for the last year. You've been writing this wonderful latest novel, which is now, what, novel 646? How many have you done now? It is number 17 which oh. just sounds insane when I say it. I, I remember when I wrote my first novel, I was just thinking, you know, I'll never forget that experience. And here I am, 17 books later. And uh, yeah. yes, it's, it's bonkers, but yes, 17. Does it feel like you've come a long way since you were an agony uncle for teen magazine bliss? Because I do, I, we need to talk about that. <laughs> I, I, it's, been, it's been a real journey. I mean, they, they, you know, that, that sort of cliche, but it, 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 it is. I mean, I've been writing now for... 22 years um and 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 like i say when i when i wrote my first book i remember just thinking this is everything i've got to say about everything there is no more and yet here i am all these years later uh, writing different kinds of books um and uh, and getting really lovely responses from readers so um yes i have had a wonderful career well, you've still got stuff to say, haven't you? And it's brilliant stuff to say. And this, you know, the things you're saying in this book about loneliness are so resonant, especially, especially after lockdown, where, you know, I mean, my personal experience, my mum has had to lock down by herself. And seeing people of a certain age have to lock down by themselves, it's really, really hard. And it's books like this that give us, that give us a little, just a little taste of hope. Well, it's really interesting. I mean, you know, I was talking with my publishers, um, you know, uh, and we, we we all, you know, my agent and my editor were saying to me, you know, this is a book for our times because it, it touches not only on, on loneliness, but also on issues of race as well. And um, I suppose, but specifically thinking about the loneliness aspect, it, it was just something that I was really well aware of um, when you... I, sort of loneliness is all about around us and we you know so many people uh, talk about loneliness as being some sort of you know almost being epidemic and of course it's it's become all the worse since people have had to lock down as well and so you know um both my parents have had to uh, sort of um they've had to lock down separately as well and and lots of um you know neighbors and things like that and so loneliness has become something that, that people can really connect to and even younger people I, I know people in their 30s and 40s have had to um lock down and so when i was mm-hmm. when i was thinking about this book it, it wasn't about anything to do with with locking down but really it was more about wondering about the stories behind lonely people um 
I suppose, you know, All the Lonely People is a, is a story about Hubert Bird. Um, he's in his 80s as a pensioner. And um, every week his daughter calls him to, um, and she lives in Australia, and she calls him yeah. to ask how he's getting on. And he paints this wonderful picture of the perfect retirement. You know, he tells her that, you know, he's been to the gardening clubs and he's been to, been to West End theatre shows and he's been out for dinner with friends. Um, but he the reality is... is well. that he, it's so heartbreaking, the characters he makes up. He makes up those friends and I'm like, oh, it's like a child. It, it's yeah. really, it pulled at my heartstrings. I don't have many heartstrings to pull at these days, Mike. <laughs> he, he, this is true he, he so he, he makes up friends as well um uh, but he doesn't actually have any he doesn't see anybody from week to week and and so it, it, it's only when his daughter uh, informs him that she's coming home that he realizes that he, he needs to do something and he needs to sort of open his door and um and get back out into the world again yeah, yeah. And as you said, race is a really, really big, important part of this book. And that's obviously become more resonant with events recently. And that really that really takes hold in the earlier chapters, because there's, there's two sort of storylines running at the same time, right? So we've got the 1950s, and we've got present day. So tell us a bit about the uh, about about Hubert's past and what's going on there. Okay, so one of the things that I really wanted to do was, was to kind of think about, well, lonely people, how do lonely people become lonely? And, you know, they're not necessarily born that way. And so um, we sort of see we've got two timelines. We've got the current timeline and we've got Hubert's past timeline, which which sort of informs his whole life. And um, in his very early, uh, the very early part start in the 1950s, he arrives from um, Jamaica um, as part of the, he arrives in England from Jamaica um, Mm. as part of the sort of, Windrush generation. He's a little bit. He's like ten years later than the first initial um, uh, initial influx of, of um, immigrants, and he um, he has a difficult time of it. So he's got a friend here in, um, that, that or came over before him, and he encounters life in England, and it and it's not the life that he sort of expected. Um, it being, you know, I think because it's part of the Commonwealth. Um, you know, he sort of believed that, that he would be welcomed with open arms because they they were actively requesting that people from the West Indies come over and mm-hmm. and um, help fill the sort of post-war uh, labour gap. And uh, he he finds what he what he finds instead is a very poor accommodation, um, and he he finds lots of prejudice. Um, but at the same time, he does find love. Um, and uh, and he meets and this is in the very early parts he meets his wife Joyce, and begins yeah. the journey that will take him through the rest of his life. Yeah, and Joyce is white as well, so that brings its own. That's right. Set, yes, yeah. selection of issues as well, doesn't it? Yeah, yes, it does. So um, Joy, Joyce's uh, family are um, resistant to uh, the idea of her marrying a black man, and so um, it causes a, a massive split within the family. And uh, she faces when they have it later have a child, that they also force, face um, all manner of, of different forms of prejudice. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I suppose what I wanted to say with the book is it's, it's not a depressing book by any any means. It's actually it's a it's a funny book and it's a joyful book. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But it's also a very real book at the same time. Yeah, I think I think characters like Hubert and and uh, and Joyce and Ashley as well. You've given so much life to. You know, yeah, it's become part of our national story. The Windrush thing, certainly in the last year or so, we've we've really we've learned so much more about it. You know, and and that is part of this story. But there is so much more, and it's, it's so lovely meeting these characters and the the life that you've given them all. Um, tell me a bit about Ashley. And as a Welshman, Mike, 
I would say yes. I, I've, right, okay. I've, I've, I've met several Ashleys. <laughs> well, Ash, Ashley is is um, Hubert's next door neighbour. She's just recently moved in, and she is the person who really inspires Hubert to um, helps him really to sort of get out of his his um, his funk. So she mm. just she's like this motor mouth, and um, she's got this uh, really lovely Welsh accent, but she speaks very quickly, and he sometimes he doesn't really understand what. Um, what she's saying but also she's got no sort of boundaries as well so um she's got she's a single mum um she's got this daughter Layla uh, who's three and um she just wants to become she she's also lonely and she needs um a support system like we all need support systems and so um things come to a little bit of a head when Ashley um having introduced herself to a new neighbour um she is trying to get a new she's trying to get a job and she um ends up asking um uh ends up asking um forget my character's name here um and ends up asking <laughs> that's what Hubert, happens when you've written 17 um, novels <laughs> she ends up asking hubert whether he'd babysit for her and so he ends up in this in this quite an awkward situation where he's looking after this complete stranger's baby but it actually be mm. it turns out to be the beginning of a, a very wonderful friendship Yes, yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, and tell me, place is an important part of your novels as well. Why? I mean, you're you're a Brummie. You're up in Birmingham now. Why, yes, why yeah. Bromley? That is a really good question. And um, uh, so, part of the novel is set in um, in Bromley, and it, I suppose it's because um, mainly because when I, I get, part something that happens in the novel. Um, a little later through uh, part way through the novel is that they uh, the Hubert decide to do something um, together with a bunch of other people to do, they decide to do something to end loneliness and I just I was thinking about places that they could I, I like the ridiculous of the ridiculousness of the idea of eradicating um, loneliness once and for all um but even more so just eradicating loneliness in bromley um there's something quite <laughs> nice about that idea just banishing it once and for all from the borough of bromley and um and they're so... gonna have to wait bromley we're on time <laughs> that's it <laughs> croydon can wait bromley um bromley we're concentrating on but i, I suppose it, it's also because um bromley is where um hubert's wife is from and so hubert's begins his life um, in England, in Brixton, um, which is a very multicultural area. And he ends up moving to Bromley, um, which certainly in the, um, when they when they ended up moving in the, in the 1960s, it, it's, it's far less multicultural. And so um, that's the reason, I suppose, why he, he's got this sort of train line. He's still got this connection between him and um, his friends in Brixton because he gets the train from Bromley to Brixton. And so mm. there's, he can always go back to where he came from in order to kind of meet up with friends and things like that. But I like the sort of contrast between Bromley and Brixton. And also there's a yeah. nice alliteration thing going on there as well. <laughs> <laughs> always, always nice when that's there. Always nice. um, that sense of otherness, you know, he's moved from Jamaica, doesn't feel he yeah. quite ever belongs in in uh, well, Brixton, then Bromley. Um, and yet here we are. And this is why it's such a great depiction of, of 
the issue of, of race. Here is this guy who's in his 80s now, you know, who has spent yeah. his, almost his entire life in the United Kingdom. And yet, now because of loneliness more than race, he feels isolated and, and by himself. And I just think that's that's just a great, exp- it's a great exploration of that idea. And it really, you know, speaking from my point of view, I can never have that story told enough times just to highlight how people can end up feeling when their lives yeah, follow certain you. paths. I mean, that, that that's the interesting thing. I mean, nobody ever in, intends to end up lonely. Nobody. Um, and so that that was the real heart of the, the novel. And the, and the real question behind it is, is how does how can you have a life that's so full and yet end up being lonely? And um, I suppose that's the, the sort of the tragedy, I suppose, of of the human mm-hmm. condition is that is that life happens and things happen um, that can make us lonely or make us feel like we need to withdraw. But it's also yeah. a story of hope. It's about community. It's about bringing people together. And uh, it, that was something that was really important to me that I, I really wanted to get across this idea that um, I think very often we can feel helpless in situations. And what I wanted to show was that actually there is something that you know we can come together as individuals and make things happen and you know i just love the power of gra- grassroots um organizations i love the uh, this idea of people um not waiting for change to come from the top down but actually people deciding on the on on a on a individual level let's get together and let's make a change and that's what's part of the story is and it's lovely watching that that change grow and happen and actually filter upwards instead of downwards. Yeah. So, um, you know what, as well, I feel like it's bec- we've become a less passive nation. I really hope we have anyway. And yes, yeah. You never know. Maybe, maybe this is just my bubble. It feels like this, but it feels growing up, everything felt very sensible and no need to do anything and all a bit everything will be fine very almost blithe to things like this whereas now maybe it's the power of social media but i think it's the power of stories like this where we think do you know what you can do something you things can change you can make stuff happen and um and and we're we're hungry for this kind of stuff at the moment well i think i think you're absolutely right it's about the power of connection and you know social what social media is, is is made has enabled us to make those connections quicker but mm. the connection has always been there. You know, it, it, it's about, you know, part of the, 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 the one of the themes of the book is, is stop being afraid of your neighbours. You know, it, it, it's, a, yes, it's amazing yes, the yes, difference yes. that if you stop being afraid and start saying hello to people, it, it brings all sorts of wonderful dividends. And, you know, it, it's, 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 a, it, it's an amazing thing. You know, my, my wife makes a, a very conscious decision to um, try and connect with people whenever she goes out. And through that, she, she you know, she'll, she'll go to the supermarket now and she'll go, oh, I'm going through this till. And I'll go, well, why? And you'll go, oh, I need to talk to my friend. And it's because she's made this connection <laughs> to this woman. Um, you know, she only sees her for once a, once a week for, you know, 10, 15 minutes. But she knows all yeah. sorts of things about her friends and her family and, you know, her hopes yes, and yes, dreams. I, and and this is why automated tills are the devil. Exactly. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Satan's work. Um, 
you know, and we and we shouldn't have anything to do with them because, yes, it might make things efficient. And this is the way that life is going. You know, um, people are try communicating less directly and, you know, it, it, it's perfectly acceptable to, you know, dump somebody by text or by, uh, you know, it, you know, or, or, or over WhatsApp or whatever. But we, we're missing this. We, you know, we've got all these personal interactions that we can have, all these personal connections um, and you know, opportunities to make new friends. I, I think it's especially, it's a male thing, you know, um, mm -hmm. and I know, you know, my, my, and, you know, maybe I'm, I'm talking in, in cliches perhaps, but my wife finds it, I think, I, I, I observe, she finds it much easier to make friends. Whereas I'm very much like, um, uh, I've got my friends, I've got everybody I need in my life. Um, yeah. And therefore no one else is coming in. <laughs> You know, I think, if you didn't I think know, we men to... often men often have a kind of one in one out policy. That's the problem. Exactly. That's yes. <laughs> or, or if you didn't make the cut by the time I'm thirty, that's it. It's just yeah. too late now. Yeah. Also, um, we all give up and just end up having our wives' friends. That's what I've done. Oh, you'll exactly. do. I'll just have yes. my friends. Yeah. 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 You'll, you'll do. Oh, yeah. Are you married to somebody that um, my my wife likes? Okay. All right. But you're in. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 And it, it is difficult, and it, and it, and I think again, it's about lowering our barriers and allowing ourselves to become vulnerable. Because since I started doing that, you know, I, I've made some, I've made some really lovely new friends, just through smiling, just through saying good morning, just through being a little less closed off. You know, you know, we're, we're all in our bubbles. We've got our phones, we've got our headphones. You know, we've got noise cancelling. It's yes. very easy to isolate yourself in a world that's actually full of people yes so if you are reading this book in a in a, in a cafe when they've opened up again look up and start waving at people see what happens there's one person who's exactly. to come and talk yeah. to you <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a magic thing that happens just by opening yourself up yeah yeah exactly um listen mike gale oh, i mean i could talk about this all day all the lonely people it is a fabulous it is a an uplifting's become a bit of a cliche recently but it is it, it it puts wind in your sails and it makes you feel happier you spend half an hour having a read of this and you will walk away feeling happier it is much cheaper than therapy mike gale all the lonely people the book is out now mike are you going to go and visit it in a bookshop Oh, I, I think I might have to make a little bit of a pilgrimage. Um, I will be wearing my mask and visor and all, all sorts of things. So um, that will be me standing in front of my books, just pointing. Good. Pointing and waving. Uh, excellent stuff. Uh, Mike, thanks for joining us on the Magic Book Club podcast. Thank you. Take care. Oh, the wonderful Mike Gale. What a fabulous guy. What a very big heart he's got. I cannot recommend that book. All the Lonely People is out now. Now, have you ever wondered what it would be like to write songs for the likes of Andrew Lloyd Webber, James Bond, Olivia Newton-John? Well, this week, Magic's very own Richard Allenson caught up with the British lyricist and the mind behind music from Starlight Express and Whistle Down the Wind and various James Bond themes. That's quite a CV, isn't it? Don Black, that's his name, and we're going to find out all about him and his new book, The Sanest Guy in the Room. He worked a lot with Andrew Lloyd Webber, and he is Mr Musical certainly for people of our generation, my generation, certainly. Does he have a specific way of working? Well, he usually has the, the melody first. He's, he, when he gets a melody, he really uh, is beside himself. I've never known such enthusiasm. It's like he's just starting. It's the first thing he's ever written. Um, and it's very uh, contagious, you know. He's, he's very stimulating. He sits at that piano and plays you a melody like it. His life depends on it. So um, he's a joy to work with from that point of view because uh, just his enthusiasm. That's how it usually starts. 
He also likes titles. Um, I gave him the title, uh, Tell Me on a Sunday. And um, he loved that title. And over the years, I've given him other titles. And uh, uh, yeah, so, so he, he likes to get, he tr that's his trigger spot, a, a good title. But basically, I get the, the melody first. I've always preferred the melody first because you get a better song that way. It also adds to the lyric, lyricist's gift, if it's a gift, uh, because you get a rigid framework to, uh, to be concise. Uh, otherwise, when, you're, when I write the lyrics first, which I've done a few times, you do tend to ramble. But if you've only got uh, three notes, like in Sunset Boulevard, Andrew played la, 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 and I thought, with one look, and that, that's a big song from Sunset. But if I had to write it first, the lyric first, it would be every time you look at me or something like that. So, uh, it, you know, it's much better to, to have the melody first. You make it sound very easy, Don. Well, it's a labour of love. It, it isn't that, you know, it, it isn't that difficult if you've got fire in your belly for this kind of thing. I was always raised on the Cole Porter as, as a... As a kid, you know, I've always loved those songs, from, you know, the, the way you look tonight. Every time we say goodbye, I die a little. And all those songs I was raised with, they're so beautifully crafted. And, um, you know, I, I, as I say, whenever I speak to students, you know, unless you can appreciate the skill of these lyrics and sometimes graceful solutions. And if you can listen to Porgy and Bess without getting a goosebump, you're in the wrong game. You, uh, you managed Matt Monroe as well as writing for him. Now, Matt Monroe was huge in the 1960s. I mean, Frank Sinatra didn't like many singers, but he was a big fan of Matt. What did you learn from, first of all, managing Matt? Well, first of all, Matt Monroe was, apart from his... I always think he was the best singer ever to come out of this country. Sinatra did love him, as Tony Bennett did. And, quite, and Vic Damone and Hoagie Carmichael. The list is quite endless of wow. Matt Monroe fans. But what I learned from that is that he was more down to earth than anyone I've ever met. Um, you know, I would say to him, Matt, uh, Sammy Davis is in tonight and he wants to come back and say hello. He'd say, OK, Don, but make it quick because we're supposed to have a curry tonight, you know. And he'd say things like that. And... Um, he was a bus driver. He started life as a bus driver. And he, I don't mean this uh, in a derogatory way to bus drivers, but he remained a bus driver mentally. He, 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 I went all around the world with Matt and never saw any of it. I would say, Matt, come on, it's Fifth Avenue. Let's go and have a walk down there or it's Ipanema Beach. And he would say to me, oh, Don, for Christ, let's have a game of pontoon. You know, it's Kenny, the pianist is there, you know. And I, so I, you know, every time I hear his version of Around the World, you know, it, it makes me smile. That was the 60s. Has the music business, the business of, you know, making music changed a lot since then? Well, I think it's unrecognisable now to how it was. I mean, I've, I, it's a bit of name, you don't mind a bit of name dropping, do you? Um, Go on. Because, I, no, because I was with uh, Noel Gallagher and... Uh, he was saying, he was talking about how you go to the Ivan Avello Awards and 10 people go up for one song. Uh, so it's changed yeah. in that. I mean, it, that is 
really unbelievable. Uh, one does a melody, one does the beats, one does a this, and one does a that. Um, and what it means is that you don't really get one singular talent as a result of a big song. You know, these 10 people have all had a bit of a go at it. And uh, so that, that's a major change. And of course, everyone writes their own songs. So that, whereas before they didn't, um, you know, Sinatra didn't, and all the people that I, you know, was brought up with, the Tony Bennett's and uh, Sarah Vaughan's, Ella Fitzgerald, they didn't write. Um, and the world was a lot better for it, Richard. You worked with Matt Monroe and famously got the Oscar. Uh, for Born Free, um, and yes. I'm just looking for those signs of success. Uh, you, you were a young man then, and you, to get an Oscar at that stage in your career, that was, if you're looking for those signs of success, that must have been reassurance that your work was was great. I mean, there's no better start than an Oscar, surely. Yeah, I don't know about the word great. Um, it, I mean, it was just a wonderful thing. At the time, I didn't realise how important an Oscar was, because I was 26 or 27 at the time. Um, I knew it was important, but it doesn't certainly make it great because a lot of ordinary songs have won Oscars. Um, but it opened so many doors, that's what it did do. And uh, as a result of Born Free, I worked with all those Henry Mancini's and Elmer Bernstein's and those great movie composers. Um, and of course it was lucky because it, it almost wasn't in the film of Born Free. So it just shows you how luck plays a very big part. Because it, for it to be eligible, it has to be in every uh, print of the film. And Carl Foreman, the producer, didn't like it very much. He didn't like the song. And, um, you know, he thought John's music was too much of an epic thing. And he thought my lyric was too much of a social comment. And, uh, but... It, Roger Williams and his orchestra and choir made a record of it in America and it went to the t top 10. And Columbia Pictures said, you know, this this song could be a, an Academy Award nomination, but we have to get it in every print, which they did. And as a result of that, it was eligible. And the end of this story is that Dean Martin gave it to me and it was life-changing. Tell us about the meeting with John Barry, because as, as composers go, he had one of the most distinctive chord sequences ever and became huge. Well, he was famous before he did the Bond movies, right? Because he was in the charts and he had his own bands. But when he, when he orchestrated those Bond themes, it was, it was such a, a, a sound. What am I trying to say? A unique sound to go with then no, the it was, movie. It was, it was. Yeah, I mean, I think someone once said that uh, James Bond is the only franchise, you know, that you, the score is as important as who's playing Bond. <laughs> and, um, but John Barry as a person, I mean, I have to say that I was his best friend. Um, in fact, I, I was maybe his only friend because he didn't have many friends. He was a lovely, lovely guy. But he didn't like a lot of the business. He thought there were so many phony people in the business. And uh, so, we, you know, when it came to his funeral, I, apart from his family, I was the only one there. Uh, but I loved John Barry. I mean, he was, he had this Yorkshire bluntness about him. And when it came to writing songs, it was just a dream. Um, I wrote over a hundred songs with John and, uh, 
it was very uncomplicated because he would play me a melody and I know that when he played it, it was more of an unveiling <laughs> because he would concentrate on it for so many days before he would ring me up in that accent of his, Don, I've got it. I've got it. I said, okay, and <laughs> he was ready to play it to me. So when he played Diamonds of Forever to me or Born Free or any of the songs I've done with him, um, I knew he'd been through the, you know, that mind-wandering lunacy that composers go through. And then I, he liked simple lyrics that sang beautifully, you know, very simple. And um, so I knew, I knew the kind of lyric he liked. And we just got on, well, we, you know, when you, people ask me about John Barry, I, I always say I remember the lunches more than the songs. David Arnold probably paid you the best compliment um, in this business, certainly. He said, one of the most pleasurable and easy things to do is to write a song with Don Black. Can't say any better than that, can you? No, and it's very easy to write a song with David Arnold. I've got to tell you, not many people know, but David Arnold is one of the best singers in the business. Um, yeah, he's a film composer, but when it comes to singing, I mean, he puts Elmer Bernstein and John Williams down. I mean, he sings like Tony Bennett. So he could sing Happy Birthday and move you. He's, uh, next time you see David or interview him, ask him to sing a few bars or something. So why doesn't he? Well, he's always talking. I've threatened him. I said, look, I'll pay for the album. Just sit down. Just, just. And I think he will. In the next year or so, you'll get a David Arnold vocal record. There you go. Something to look forward to there. Thank you very much, Richard Allenson. Don's book, The Sanest Guy in the Room, is out now. And don't forget, Richard Allenson does your drive time every day on Magic from 5pm. Now, I'm sure that you've been diving back into your favourite novels over the past few months. Comfort reading, throwing yourself back into an old novel is like it's like diving into an old comfy bed, isn't it? With really heavy, feathery pillows. And re- Anyway, you get, you get the gist. I'll probably leave that image there. Have you ever wondered what inspires the authors behind your favourites? Well, we found out. Hi, I'm Louise Cantlish and I'm the author of The Other Passenger. What music did I listen to while writing The Other Passenger? I listened mainly to Lana Del Rey, who is um, the favourite artist of Amelia, who is my femme fatale, and she loves the whole um, vintage glamorous look of Lana. And there's one scene where she's dancing to um, the cover of the Sublime track, Doing Time, and she's um, dancing with her friend down by the river. Um, And it's a key scene in the book. Did I have any rituals to get me into the writing zone? I don't really have rituals as such, but I do have a very serious addiction to coffee and I probably can't can't get a word out, I can't start without at least two flat whites. My must-have dish to wind down after a day of writing, it would be comfort food of some sort, so probably pizza or tacos or um, pasta, a big bowl of spaghetti with pesto. Where did I write my masterpiece? Well, assuming that The Other Passenger is my masterpiece, I wrote it on the sofa. The drinks that kept me going during the writing of this book would be um, coffee, obviously, and also Diet Coke. I'm a real child of the 80s, um, so I have my Diet Coke every day. And then alcohol, it would be white wine every time. I think the people who keep me inspired during the writing process are always readers because I spend so much time alone. On this book I didn't um, use any experts, it was all researched online and by myself. Um, So I always used readers' um, comments and, you know, the daily tweets and Facebook comments to, to keep my motivation up. 
The best time of day for me to write is the morning, I think usually after a dog walk and then I'm feeling healthy and the blood's circulating and the ideas are circulating and I can just get going. The most interesting place my research took me to on this book was um, the Thames and um, the route of the Thames Clipper river buses because the characters um, take the river bus from an area around Woolwich into the West End and so I was up and down the Thames constantly when researching the book. The most interesting person to help me with my research was the late great actress Barbara Stanwyck who was a huge inspiration for the character of Amelia so I must have watched Double Indemnity six or seven times while I was writing. The cheekiest demand I've made of friends and family while in the writing zone would be um, texting my husband and asking him to, to go and get me some gelato. There's a place nearby that's really fantastic and um, if I'm very lucky, I'll go and do that for me. What I do to celebrate when I've finished a book is, um, probably sounds quite odd, but I'll read a book because I usually don't read contemporary crime books while I'm writing. And so I'll, it'll be a huge treat to, to read the book I've been saving up. In this case, I think it was um, Kate Atkinson's Big Sky. Who do I let read my drafts? Um, only my agent and editors. I'm really squeamish about um, people reading first, second, third drafts. I like it to be as perfect as possible by the time it gets to readers. Well, Louise, they definitely are. The wonderful Louise Candlish there. And that is all we've got time for this week on the Magic Book Club podcast. My name's Tom Price. And do join us next time for more of your favourite authors and stories. And in the meantime, of course, it goes without saying, happy reading. 